a total of like 10 minutes, which isn't a long time, and, uh, but in the moment, it feels like it, right? If you've ever lost a phone or something, you're just like tearing up everything looking for it, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking, and the whole time, I just keep telling myself, I literally just had it. I don't know if you ever lose something, but at one point, you have it. It's like you turn the corner, and then it's just totally gone, and I'm like, I literally just had it. So at the end of, you know, this frantic ordeal, I remember I have an Apple Watch, uh, and there's a feature that helps you find your lost iPhone. So you press a button, literally, and it will ping your iPhone, one of the greatest inventions ever. So I'm pinging. There's, there's so much victory. I'm like, I found it. The search and rescue team can go home, right? And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's lost things before, right? We lose things all the time. TV remotes, uh, jewelry, wedding bands, keys, uh, phones. We lose things all of the time, and we all can relate. There's this joy. There's this excitement. There is just like this sense of victory when you finally find what you've lost. Can we all agree? Yeah, we all can agree on that. But have you ever thought, does everything deserve the same amount of celebration when it's lost and then found? Like, does everything kind of have the same amount of value to you? For example, if you lose a pair of socks, maybe your lucky socks, and then find them, does that bring the same amount of excitement as maybe losing and finding your wedding band? You know, maybe not. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at uh, the Bible, and we're going to kind of talk about this idea of lost and found, and we're going to actually find out, man, what brings God the most joy? Like, what is God actively searching for? What is at the top of God's priority list in this concept of of search and rescue? So if you would open up with me, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. It's going to be on the screen. And uh, then we're going to jump down to verses 11. So Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Skip down to verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Let's just stop for a second. Uh, This is a a very famous passage, prodigal of the lost son. Uh, And a couple of things we have to notice here. When this son is asking his dad for his inheritance, we all know that in most cases, a father or grandparent parent or whatever, they pass their inheritance down after what they've passed away, right? So by this boy asking his dad for his inheritance while he's still alive, what's he doing? He's basically wishing his father dead, right? He's basically saying, dad, I I want all of the things you can give me, but I I don't really want you. Did you get that? Like, I I just want your stuff, but I I don't want you. And this had to hurt, Right? A lot of times when people reject us and when they hurt us and when they scar us, what do we do? We tense up, right? We, we uh, throw up defense walls. We, we don't allow ourselves to become attached. We, we totally remove emotion and feeling so that we don't get hurt again. We usually don't like to go toward people that have a tendency to hurt us. We run far away. But this father does something radically different and he actually draws closer into his son and he grants him his crazy bold request. Also, it's important to note that in the story, when it says that the father divided his property among them, that word property in the Greek is bios, and that word bios means life. And why would it say that he's basically dividing his life between them? 
Because this, in Middle Eastern culture, someone's estate, their property, all of their possessions, it was very much tied into their sense of identity, their standing in culture, their reputation, their, their, their everything. So when this father is dividing literally his life between them, he's giving them his reputation. He's giving them his standing. He's giving them his title. He's giving them his everything. And this boy, when you kind of picture it, he's basically saying, Dad, tear apart your reputation from me. And the dad does. That's pretty crazy. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So look at this boy. He squandered everything he's had in wild living. He's out, he's partying, and not only does he lose all of his money, but he finds himself in the middle of a famine. What is a famine? It's a severely shit alive. So the text says that he hires himself out to a worker, and I don't know if you noticed, but it says that he's feeding pigs. Why is this important? Because if you're a Jewish boy, you know that you don't eat pork, you don't associate with pork, you stay away from pigs because they're unclean. I don't know if you guys knew that, but that's a fun fact. Most Jewish people do not eat pork. But in a moment of desperation, in a moment of just not having anywhere else to go, nowhere else to feed him, nowhere else to, to really have a hope of living, he ends up eating the food of the pigs. This is a low moment. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to communicate. He's had a pretty low moment in his life. You see, when he, you're in desperation, sometimes tradition out the window, logic out the window, you know, everything that you may have been trained out the window, because when you're just trying to stay alive, right, that's, that's your most prominent need right there. He's just trying to stay alive. And the text even tells us that no one gave him anything. Can you imagine that? He's at such a low point in his life, and no one gave him anything. He doesn't have food. He doesn't have anyone to care for him. He's ran away from his family. He's a disgrace. He does, he's a disgrace to you know, his, his Jewish race. He's, he's a disgrace to himself. He's at a moment so low in his life. And I don't know if uh, any of us in here have ever encountered low moments, right? Um, but I think they have the power to do something uh, to us, right? Low moments kind of can, can do something pretty powerful inside of us. And I remember I was talking to one of my uncles a few years ago, and I was sitting in the car, and I was venting about, you know, some different things. And he was like, Jordan, in order for people to change, it either takes inspiration or desperation. You know, you either need inspiration or desperation. And man, don't we all hope we can just be inspired, we all hope we can learn from people's mistakes, learn from their pain so we can avoid it, learn from, you know, their wrong misfortunes so we don't have to uh, go through them ourselves. But sometimes we just have to go through a low moment, right? Sometimes we just have to go through our, our, own, low our own low valley before things just actually start to click. And uh, the good news is that we don't have to stay there. Right? We don't have to stay in those low moments. The son didn't have to stay in his low moment. Look at verse 17. It says, When he came to his senses, he said, 
how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the son realizes that he's been foolish. He's realized that he's better off just being a lowly servant in his father's household because at least then he'll have food. You see, what happened did pain brought clarity. Right? Doesn't pain have the power to do that? Pain sometimes brings a lot of clarity to, uh, clarity to us. Like we're, we're in a low moment. Man, we're, we're, we're just in the trenches. But, but uh, somehow something happens where things just become clear. Right? And for this boy, he was like, I need to go home. I've been acting pretty foolishly. You know, I remember I was in sixth grade, sixth grade, and I had a bike and I had a ramp. I didn't do much with it until one day I was like, you know, I, was, I guess I watched something on TV. I was feeling inspired by the X Games, and I was like, Dad, can I go outside, take my bike, and, and I want to try to jump the ramp. I, I want to try to clear this, you know, you know get some chest hair. Uh, and my dad was just like, no. So what did I do? I waited for him to go upstairs. He closed his door. Then I go outside and do the exact thing he told me not to do. So I have a ramp. It's not crazy. I probably like yay high. And I back up to my neighbor's house. So I'm pedaling. I'm pedaling. I try to clear it. I don't have enough speed. Like the bike kind of just goes like, right? So then I back up to the second house. So I'm pedaling. I'm pedaling. I'm pedaling. And still like a a tire kind of gets over it, but I'm still not clearing it. So I'm like, I need to do this. I back up like three or four houses, and I'm like, I am going to clear this ramp. So I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling, and I clear that ramp, and then uh, blackness, right? I don't really remember what happened, but me and the bike, we got separated, and I just remember, like, I hit that ground hard. And it's like something out of a movie. Like, I open my eyes, and I see the tire spinning, and I'm just laying on the pavement. I was in a lot of pain. And uh, my dad, he's watching this whole thing. He's just standing at the door, just like, and like any good father, he says, pick up the stuff and bring it in the house, right? So I pick up the ramp, put it on my shoulder. I'm like wheeling the bike in the house, and then I like throw everything downstairs, uh, and my forearms are killing me. So the next day, uh, we end up going to the doctor, and it turns out I fractured both of my forearms and dislocated both of my wrists. Uh, it was terrible. I had cast for a while. Everyone signed it. They're cool. Um, but my, <laughs> my personal pain helped me to realize that, you know, I shouldn't try something like that again. It brought clarity that uh, listening to my dad is probably better advice, um, and no longer will I ever try jumping off a bike ramp. You know, if you want to do that, God bless you, but that's, that's not my ministry. <laughs> But pain for this boy also allowed him to realize that he's been acting foolish, right? That he's, he's found himself in a terrible position, and he needed to come home. That, that's what pain did for him. So he's, he's trying to rehearse, okay, what am I going to tell my dad when I see him? He says, God, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm sorry, he says, Dad, I'm, uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Would you take me back as a hired servant? And he has this whole thing kind of rehearsed. But then something totally unexpected happens once he's actually greeted by his father. We're we're all familiar with it, but let's read it. Verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Then his arms threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Woo, that is a powerful, powerful passage. Right? And I want, I want us to kind of get some things. Middle Eastern dads, they did not run. Women ran. Children ran. Middle Eastern dads, they did not run. But this one does. Right? He, he's not acting like a traditional father. He also kisses his son, embraces his son before. Interesting. Also, the father, get this, the father doesn't wait for the son to, to get all clean. Just imagine how this son probably looks or smells, right? He's been traveling for, for we don't know how long, but I assume, let's say weeks. I don't know. Uh, but he's probably stinky. He's dirty. He doesn't have sandals on his feet. He, he probably looks homeless. And the dad doesn't say, hey, son, take a shower, and then come back. No, immediately the dad says, hey, get my best robe, right? Hey, get the best ring. Hey, uh, put new sandals on his feet. The dad doesn't wait for him to clean up his act. Right, the, the dad right there immediately, he clothes him with his righteousness. He clothes him with his cleansliness. He clothes him with something that that boy did nothing to deserve. And he even brings out the fattened calf, right? They have a party, they're celebrating, it is all good. But there's one more person in the story uh, that we haven't mentioned yet, and that's the older brother. And uh, let's look at how does he respond to, you know, his brother coming home. Let's look at it, verse 25. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a... Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. Amen. And the, and the brother responds with so much anger, right? He, he's so frustrated. The father never gave him a calf. The father never gave him goat. You know, the, the father, you know, he's like, Father, do you understand how expensive calf is? Calf was extremely expensive in that day, and you're going to waste it on this son of yours. Notice, he doesn't say my brother, right? He says son of yours. They, there's, I think there's uh, definitely some unhealthy family tensions going on. Um, but he's, he's totally appalled that his father would waste, you know, the very best on basically a rebellious sinner. You know, he's slaved for countless years for his father. He's done all the right things for his father, and he got nothing. And, you know, we're left wondering, we're on the edge of our seats, like, what's going to happen? Is the family going to be restored? Is, is the father, is the boy going to come back into the house? Are they all going to celebrate? Is everything going to be okay? And Jesus kind of just ends the story, right? Jesus, does, he just leaves us on a cliffhanger, and um, that's kind of how Jesus does things. So <laughs> what does this passage uh, show us today? I think there's two things, two big points uh, that we can take out of the passage real quick. One, 
It shows us how Jesus redefines God. Jesus redefines this this view of God. Like we read this story and we're so disappointed with the younger son. We're disappointed and maybe angry because we don't think he deserves uh, all the things his dad did for him. We're appalled that he would be so disrespectful to his parents. I don't, maybe you relate to the parent, maybe you relate to the son, I don't know. But we're just like, why would this dad do this, right? This dad embraces his son. And I think many people struggle uh, with this idea of God being a father because maybe growing up you didn't have uh, a great father. He didn't set a healthy example. Um, he wasn't loving. He wasn't embracing. He, he wasn't kind, to say the least. Or maybe he just wasn't there, right? So many people struggle with this idea of God being a father because their earthly one was so unhealthy, And you're not alone because in Middle Eastern culture, they also would have struggled with this idea of father. Because in this culture, a father to them was one that didn't tolerate disrespect. A father was one that didn't run after his children. A father was one that would away from the family. Their view of a father was not someone who showed this sort of weakness. You know what I mean? So Jesus takes all of our preconceptions. He takes all of our ideas and and preconceived notions about our fathers, and he shatters all of that, and he says, no, this is what your heavenly father is like, right? This is what your heavenly father is like. You know, for all of God's majesty and power and splendor and awe and and his, his beauty, for his holiness, for all of those attributes, he's also a father. He's a father, Right? And, and we can't forget that, that he is a father and he rejoices in lost people coming home. That's the big idea of this story, that God rejoices in lost people being found. And there is a difference between loving lost people and loving the idea of lost people. Let me explain. Like this father, he loves his son while his son is at a distance. He loves his son in the face of rejection. He loves his son to the point where he clothes him with his very best. You see, this is a tangible expression of love. Again, we celebrate baptisms because we are thankful and and, uh, 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 glad that lost people become found, that people put their hope and their trust in Jesus. And, and I think we have to be reminded of the fact that every single one of us was lost, right? If, if you consider yourself a believer in this place, at, at one point in your life, doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, we were all lost, right? We used God for the things we thought he could give us. We recklessly pursued all of these other things. We, we tried to be good people, and, and in his grace, in his love, he pursued us, and he welcomed us home. For every single one of us, in the face of not wanting anything to do with God, right, and totally rejecting him and kicking and screaming and saying, I want to be my own king, he still pursued us, and he still loved us, and he still said, hey, I I still made you with value and purpose, and I'm not going to give up on you. You see, we find so much joy in finding our lost TV remotes and finding our wedding bands and finding our keys and finding our phones. I get it. We all find so much joy in these things. And you know what brings God the most joy? Finding his lost children. Like that, that is at the top of God's priority list, finding lost, peop- uh, lost people. Now, 
If we just simply love the idea of lost people, then nothing in our day is going to change. This is what I mean. If we just like the idea of lost people, we'll just divide the world into good people and bad people. We'll still just become enraged with lost people for the lost things they do. Uh, We'll pray for them on occasion, but we won't actually weep for them. Right? We, won't, we won't get to a point where our hearts just break for them being lost, not just them disrupting our lives, not them just hurting us. You see, there's a, diff- there's a difference between hating the things someone does and, and just being so torn over the fact that they don't know Jesus. Right? I think we get so upset over the symptoms of lost people, and we should get upset, but if we don't truly love them, we'll never actually care that they don't know Jesus, right? That we have the greatest treasure to give them, that I'm just torn over the fact that you don't know Jesus, that your life won't have value until you know this king I know. Can can I just tell you about him? He's so good. If we don't love lost people, that won't be our priority. You know, we won't associate with them We'll keep them kind of at arm's length. We won't risk them coming into our lives because when people come into our lives, they can hurt us. They can let us down. And it's much safer to keep them at a distance and, you know, kind of just know your coworkers at a surface level, but, but never actually go deeper, right? If we don't actually love lost people, we won't make our lives mission being about bringing as many people on the, on the boat as possible, right? We, we won't make it our lives mission to say, I'm going to do whatever I can to, man, to try to bring Jesus to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to, man, invite you into my life. I'm going to do whatever I can just to share Jesus with you because he is so good and changed my life. But if we don't love lost people, we won't do any of those things, right? All of our friends, all of the, the closest people we know will, will know Jesus, and we won't have any association with them. And can I just challenge us all and say Jesus didn't do any of those things. Jesus didn't just talk about the idea of lost people with his disciples. He was a friend of sinners. They loved him, right? He loved them. He, he knew them. And yes, he challenged them, and they came to believe in, in him. But man, he associated with them. And I just want us to think, think about the lengths that Jesus went to to bring us home. Luke 22 explains Jesus is in the garden. He's praying, God, if if this isn't your will, Lord, I mean, if if there's any other way, if there's any other plan you have, please tell me, because this is going to be really hard. But he still says, not my will, but yours be done, right? It says, Luke 22 says an angel come and strengthen him, and he prayed so hard that bl- drops of blood were coming from him. Aren't we thankful that Jesus didn't hold back his love for us, right? That he endured it painfully and willingly and sacrificially. He didn't hold anything back. And man, the challenge is to us, are we going to hold things back from our neighbors? So number one, Jesus kind of redefines this picture of God, a God that pursues us a God that loves us, man, a God that never stopped caring for us, a God that doesn't wait for us to come to him, but he came to how Jesus redefines sin. And uh, I want to invite Danny back up as we're starting to wrap up the second half. You know, Jesus redefines his view of sin. Um, I think so many people, we focus on the younger brother. We're like, oh, he's rebellious, he's this, he's that. It's so easy to see his sins because they're just out in the open. And if you remember at the beginning, we read verses 1 and 2 because it says that Jesus is addressing Pharisees, sinners, and tax collectors, right? So to any Pharisee or religious person, they can easily see who the younger brother is in the story, right? They're like, ah, of course, the younger brother, he's the sinners over there. But if they're the sinners, who are 
the tax collector. Who's the older brother, right? The Pharisees, the tax collectors, okay? Because Jesus is Jesus, he doesn't allow, you know, the sinners to be marginalized and targeted. No, he flips the table and he does something so radical. You see, yes, the younger brother was very, very bad. We all, we all know that. But the older brother was very, very good. But both brothers, get this, both of them were separated from their father. You see? Both of them were separated from the father. Both sons wanted the father's things, but not the father. Each of them used the father to get the things they really wanted. Wealth, status, a name, respect, power. But at the end of the day, both of his sons are lost. You see, sin is not just doing the wrong things. We got we to gotta remember that. Sin is not just doing the wrong things. Sin is also doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And that's exactly what that word slaving doesn't necessarily mean love. Right? He's slaving. He's working. He's doing all of these things. But the whole time he's doing them, he's not actually doing it because he loves his dad. He's doing it because he loves what he thinks he, his dad can give him. And my question to all of us today is that has that ever been us? Has that ever been you? Maybe your life isn't an obvious sin, right, where you're partying and and doing all of these things and acting crazy, but what's your motivation for the right things? Have you ever found yourself using God for something you thought he could give you, right? Maybe using God to, to make you feel good about yourself, using God in religious things to make you feel better than your coworkers, better than your friends, better than your family members, using God to just have a sense of superiority toward other people, using God so that you could fit into the category of a good person compared to bad people. You see, it's so easy, and if we're not careful, any one of us can slip into this category of, man, of the pharisaical sin of, of, man, good people, bad people, my right deeds get me in, and your wrong deeds keep you out. And, man, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. So, the other reality is that when we do uh, all of these right things, and we have this mindset of, of trying to earn God's favor. It's, it's, it really leads to anger. It really leads to bitterness. It really leads to frustration. And why is that? Because the world's not perfect, and God doesn't work like that. So when we're not rewarded for our good behavior, and then when bad people are rewarded for their bad behavior, it flips, it, like it, it messes up the whole system right? And we're left confused. We're left bitter. Look at the older brother. Why is he so angry? Because his little brother was rewarded for a system that doesn't seem to make sense, right? Why should he get rewarded for the good things he did? Dad, I've I've slaved. I did everything perfect, everything, and you give me nothing? There's this tension that you're always going to live in if you feel as if you have to try to earn God's favor, If you feel like you can earn God's favor, every day your heart won't be at rest. You won't do things out of love and freedom. You'll do things out of trying to compete with the people around you. You see what I mean? Like we we won't actually be at rest. Every day will be this competition. But I think I love the 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 story because you know, how, how does God address our selfish hearts when they kind of come to these moments of wanting to use God to get the things he, 
we think he can give us? Well, God addresses us in the same way he addresses his oldest son. And he tells him this. He says, son, everything I have is already yours. Everything I have is already yours. And I, and I think that can be a reminder, but also an encouragement to all of us. If we have been following the Lord for any amount of time, we have to remember that everything God has is already ours. His peace, his forgiveness, his presence. Man, an eternal hope. We have his son. We have love. We have access to the kingdom. We have the keys to the kingdom of God, right? We have his righteousness. I don't have to try to be a good person. God gives me his righteousness, and I obey out of love. I'm not trying to get something. He's already given me everything. There's nothing more than Jesus. There's nothing I need more than Jesus. And God's already freely giving that to me. So we just have to remember, and the dad's like, son, everything I have is already yours. So our hearts can rest in needing to find significance and value in all of these places and all of these different things. And we can just rest in the love that God has for us. He already has it for us. Our hearts can really be at rest. So in closing, there's, there's three things I think that this text motivates us to do. If you're kind of wondering, where do I go from here? There's three things. One, I think the text motivates us to pursue lost people. Right? This is God's heart. We pursue lost people because we ourselves have been pursued. Right? We pray for lost people. We invite them into our houses for, for dinner. Right? We, 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 we become a friend. It's simple. But we, we just become a friend and we share our lives intentionally with people who don't know Jesus. Right? We pursue them. We pray for them. We realign our hearts to be on board with God's mission, not my preference. And we pray that God would